Welcome, everyone, to the inaugural episode of the Wealth Management Today podcast. My name is Craig Eskowitz, and my first guest on the show is industry legend Joel Bruckenstein. We chatted about the recent T3 Advisor Conference, which he just happens to produce, and had a great discussion about some of the announcements, emerging trends, and new products that were launched. There's a lot to unpack here, so let's jump right in. This episode of Wealth Management Today is brought to you by Ezra Group Consulting. Hiring the right technology consultants can have a huge impact on your business, while the wrong ones can crater it. If your company sells software or services to the wealth management industry, Ezra Group can help you improve your products, better understand your target markets, and gain insight into your competitors. Go to ezragroup.co, that's E-Z-R-A-G-R-O-U-P.co for more information. This is the Wealth Management Today podcast. It's on Wealth Tech. Thank you all for joining me. This is your host, Craig Iskowitz, and I'll be your virtual tour guide on this journey we will take together to Planet Wealth Tech. On this podcast, we will discuss, debate, and dissect the latest in wealth management technology. So being a consultant to many of the best software companies, banks, broker dealers, and TAMPs, uh, I'll be combing through my LinkedIn connections to bring you the interviews with key players who are driving change and innovation in our industry. But before we get to my interview, I wanted to thank everyone who contributed ideas to the Name My Podcast contest that I recently ran on Twitter. The response was overwhelming, and the tweets back and forth were a lot of fun to follow. And I really tried to respond back to everyone, and I again appreciate everyone's input. The winning name was, of course, Wealth Management Today podcast, which extends the brand of my successful industry blog, which I'm sure everyone here has read. But for those of you who might be new, you can find it at wmtoday.com. That's W for wealth and M for management, today.com. Congratulations to April Rudin and Kyle Van Pelt for that wise advice. And an honorary mention goes to Jason Lahita, who suggested the It's On, which I'm using as my tagline. Other great names that were suggested in the contest include Wealth Tech Stories, The Future of Wealth Tech, WM Today's FinTech Fanatics, which I'm sure everyone listening is a FinTech fanatic, What the Heck Wealth Tech, which does have a nice ring to it, but uh, didn't quite win, Planet Wealth Tech, and two of the funniest ones were Wealthy McTechface and Wealth Tech Owitz. Both funny, didn't win, but still amusing. Now that this podcast has a name, it's time to hear my interview with Joel Bruckenstein. I've known Joel for many years, and he is truly a legend in the industry. I was definitely excited to have him as my very first guest. So let's get started. Joel Bruckenstein is an internationally recognized expert on applied technology for financial professionals, and the publisher of the T3 Tech Hub, formerly called Technology Tools for Today, which is a source for the latest news and in-depth reporting on financial services technology. Joel is also the producer of the annual T3 Advisor Conference, 
which is the premier technology event for independent financial advisors. I just went to that conference last month. You can read that on my blog, awesome conference, as well as the T3 Enterprise Conference, an annual gathering of top executives from independent broker dealers and large REAs. Last one of those was back in October of last year, which I also attended, highly recommend it. Joel has advised financial services firms of all sizes for more than 20 years on improving technologies, processes, and workflows. He is the co-author of three books, that's impressive in itself, on financial technology and writes regularly for all the industry trade magazine and publications. Good morning, Joel. Good morning. Thank you for dialing in this early. I really appreciate it. So this morning, we're going to talk about uh, the T3 Advisor Conference, which you just held. It was a great success. I really, really enjoyed it. I thought a lot of people got a lot out of it. Well, thank you. And I just wanted to talk a bit, a bit about it and Maybe from from your point of view, since you see it a little different, a little different angle, what would you say were the top tech that came out of the conference? Well, there was so much news coming out of the conference; it's hard to zero in on any one or two things. But what I I would say is this: I think there were a couple of really interesting things. So number one is, I would say the refocus on financial planning software and some of the innovation that's going on in that space. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I thought was very interesting was sort of round two of some of the innovators in the industry who had, you know, either sold their businesses or taken a step back and now um, reintroduced themselves to my audience and I think to the world at T3, guys like Edmund Walters and um, Oleg Tishevich. Do you see that as being a sign of maturity in the industry? I, I think the industry is still evolving. I think really what it's a sign of is, is some of the opportunities that are out there and the growth of the industry and people recognizing that. And I also think it, it talks to the entrepreneurial spirit of some of the folks in the industry, particularly in fintech. They're entrepreneurs and they're innovators and they can't just rest on their laurels. You know, When they see an opportunity to do something exciting, they just want to jump on it. Oh, definitely. And that's, that's definitely an attitude of many entrepreneurial-focused people. Uh, but do you think this is a, an indicator that there will be more innovation in our, I mean, our niche in, in wealth tech is, is a bit different than, than payments or other spaces? So when we've seen a lot more turnover in those spaces of, of entrepreneurs starting companies, do you see it, it's a longer cycle for a company to get started, get traction, and then get sold in, in wealth management technology than in other spaces? Well, the way I would put it is a little bit differently. I just don't think that a lot of the folks coming from outside really understand wealth tech as well. So payments are pretty clear cut. I mean, you can have a new idea, obviously, but it's a very, you know, well-known space and I think it's a well-understood space. So there's innovation, but, you know, people understand the space. There's a lot of folks that come into fintech in our space and don't really understand the space if they're coming in from the outside. So I think it does give a little more of an opportunity to people who are, you know, for lack of a better term, insiders to innovate because there's a little less competition. And yes, the runway is a little bit longer for somebody coming in from the outside. It takes a little time to really understand the space before they can be successful, shall we say. Interesting. And what I see, just looking at these two examples of of Edmund and and Oleg, they were with their firms a long time. I think Oleg said he was with finance logics for 16 years. And I know uh, e-money's been around for at least that long before they found yeah. the second company. Yeah. And, and Oleg was in, in the space before that actually in, in other areas. So, 
you know, he's got a lot of experience and obviously, you know, Edmund's story I think is pretty well known. And yes, he's been around, I, I think he started the company around 2000. So he certainly understands the space. He was an advisor before that. And so he has, you know, deep domain knowledge. And I think he has a very good understanding of, of what the needs of advisors are, as does Oleg. Oh, definitely. You, you can tell that. I'm just, you know, I've known those guys for a long time. The, my, my point was that, is it, does it take longer to turn around a company from startup to success to exit in wealth tech than in other spaces? You know, look at social media companies where they start a company, a couple of guys, and four years later, they're billionaires. Yeah, it, it's a good question. And, and again, I think it's a little bit difficult to generalize because, you know, there have been instances of people sort of, you know, building to sell as opposed to trying to build a business. And I think, you know, what you see is, is some of the more successful entrepreneurs, well, at least successful at their product. I don't know if it's successful personally, financially for themselves, but the ones who have successful products that that tend to really have a long shelf life is that they go into it. I'm trying to build a company, not trying to build something to sell. You saw a number of the robo advisors that were built and turned around and sold in, in a matter of a few years. And some of those didn't work out as well for the acquirers because they weren't mature companies yet. And they were clearly built to be sold. Yeah. That's a kind of a play on the, uh, the term built to last. These are built to sold, built to be sold. Right. Not not the best business model. Switching topics, the some of the other things that I saw, just to get your your opinion on some of these, looking at the different panel discussions or the different presentations, which I found to be really very useful and, and, and provide a lot of insight into what the companies are thinking, I saw uh, some common themes. One of them was APIs, application programming interfaces. A lot of presentations from different vendors were mentioning and, and playing up their strength in APIs. Do you see that as, as being a trend and, and how will that impact how FinTech is, uh, wealth tech is, uh, is consumed and, and advances? Yeah, I mean, definitely APIs are, are sort of the latest theme in the integration discussion that's been going on pretty much since I've been in the business. It's always a challenge, you know, how do you get applications to talk to each other? And there seems to be a consensus around people building APIs and sort of co-creating those integrations. You know, everybody's got them or is trying to build them, but I don't think all APIs are equal, number one, and all firms, this API strategy is going to be equally successful. If you were evaluating a company's API strategy, what would you say would be the, the couple key points that would uh, indicate success? Well, one thing is not all APIs are created equal. So, you know, an API is a way of sharing data, uh, some APIs are a lot richer than others with regard to the data that they can share. So it's like saying, you know, we have integration. If it, is it a one-way integration? What kind of data can you get through that integration? It's the same with APIs. So how fast are they? How much data can you send through that API? And what type of data can you send to API? That's one issue. And the other issue is, you know, if you're a startup and you create a lot of APIs, well, that's great. But that doesn't necessarily create demand for those APIs. So if you're an established company and you have data that people want, they may be willing to spend resources to write to your API. But if you just put an API out there and nobody wants what you're selling, essentially, just because you have an API doesn't mean that you're going to be successful. Yes, I, I found that in my business as well, that 
a lot of firms are, are looking to build APIs or they think that it's a checkbox they need to have. And then they realize that it's, it's not a bill that they will come. They need to go out and uh, explain to people and, and talk to people and get people to you know, then connect to their APIs because everyone wants you to come to them. Right. So that's, yeah. And that's not going to happen. Right. And, and because of that. So on the one hand, it's a good thing. On the other hand, it's kind of a shortcut saying we're not going to put in the work to create this integration. Your, the counterparty is going to have to do some or all of the work. So depending on what your strength is in the industry, the stronger you are and the more people want the data. If you have a good API that has a rich API or a rich set of APIs, people will want to write to those. But if you don't, not so much. True. I mean, I've been doing this a long time, as have you. And I remember 10 years ago, I did a deep dive on APIs. And the only vendors that really had uh, APIs were Money Guy Pro and eMoney. And they were yep. really leaders, uh, and, and, and they saw this way early and realized if you've got to get out in front of that, then you become the hub, and people start building to you because you're, you're first. Right. Uh, another trend I saw in, in terms of numbers of mentions and focus in the presentations was client experience and emotional intelligence. So how do you think that has changed the way vendors are building products and now they're focusing more on, on client experience? Well, I think the focus on client experience is long overdue. You know, for many years, software was built by a bunch of geeks, um, for geeks. And so that meant, A, the user experience for advisors was not very good, so the actual advisors using the software. And not a lot of thought or not enough thought was really given about the end client experience. And clearly what you're seeing in, in retail is that the end user experience is what's driving everything. And so our industry is not you know, blind, uh, they picked up on it. And I think, yeah, it's, it's one of the primary drivers of software today, creating a better user experience uh, for the end user that allows them to work with an advisor the way they want to work with an advisor. So that there's no doubt about. And I think emotional intelligence is another theme that, that's sort of been going on, at least in the elite circles of advisory um, for quite some time. You know, if you look at studies on behavioral finance and things like that, they go back quite a ways. Um, but I think now it's coming more to the mainstream. And part of that is clearly emotional intelligence and understand the emotion of advise, advisory clients a little bit better. And an, a realization that you know, a lot of the tools that historically have been used to gauge things like risk have been sorely lacking. So to me, it's just that is part of a maturing industry. And I think it's a very positive sign. How do you think that will, will change the way vendors are building products? I mean, we, we hear a lot, you know, I'm sure you've seen this many times as well, that we want to be more like Amazon. Look at Amazon changing things. Look at Apple changing things. Look at you know, uh, other, other big retail-focused, uh, consumer-focused consumer brands. But no one's really doing anything that innovative like those firms are doing. So you think this is finally the, the breakthrough where we're going to see more innovative products around client experience? I think it's a little more difficult to be innovative in our industry strictly uh, because it's such a regulated industry. And so that's been holding us back to some extent. But I do think we're starting to see a change. You're seeing firms hire people that have a lot of experience in the UI. You see people hiring or big firms in our industry, hiring data scientists and behavioral finance people. And so they're moving in the right direction. But because we're such a regulated industry and because 
advisors as a rule tend to be a little bit more resistant to change than some uh, some other industries and certainly the retail industry it just takes a little bit longer true the th- another trend i saw was which i've been waiting for for a while is there's more products that are actually taking advantage of artificial intelligence different components of it rather than just talking about it they're actually putting them into into real products uh, the specific product I want to talk about was the Enviso facial recognition. Yep. Do you see that as also another start of a trend? Will, will more products be copying this and using different aspects of AI to enhance the uh, the advisor experience? Yeah, it's pretty funny. I, I wrote about them, I want to say, like three years ago when I first came across them, and I was very impressed with what they were doing. But clearly they've matured a bit, and I think they are just one of a number of products um, that are looking to incorporate both biometrics and artificial intelligence in creative ways. So there's a lot of products out there and a lot of firms that are experimenting with artificial intelligence from some of the biggest custodians down to the startups. But I think, again, we're just at really the tip of the iceberg there. I think over the next 12 to 18 months, you'll see a lot more of that. You know, you have things like chatbots. TD has them built into both their, some of their retail and their advisor-facing things. And there's a number of startups that are looking to incorporate artificial intelligence into the end-user experience. So, Joel, gazing into your crystal ball in 12 to 18 months, do you, what, what um, features do you see? Or look at the next T3 advisor. What do you see uh, in terms of artificial intelligence as being table stakes? So what will all firms feel they have to say they have in their products that are artificial intelligence related? Well, I think we're still in the experimental phase, so it's really hard to see exactly where it is. But I think you'll see artificial intelligence certainly in a couple of areas. One is automation, just taking things that advisors do manually and to the extent they can automate them. So it may be automating workflows. It may be making suggestions to advisors about things they should be having a discussion with their clients about, things that may have otherwise in the past fallen uh, through the cracks. So, you know, things like financial planning. Hey, maybe this would be a really good time to talk to uh, somebody about Medicare, or maybe this would be a really good time to talk to somebody about a rollover. So presenting opportunities for conversations and actually guiding the advisor a little bit more You've got a firm like Intergen Data that has, it's using big data to sort of create profiles, if you will, of somebody who has certain characteristics. These are milestones in their life that might be important and that an advisor should be aware of or they can discuss with a client. So I think you're going to see more of that kind of thing. And I think on on sort of the client service side, you're also going to start seeing artificial intelligence becoming more prominent. So Somebody calls up an advisory firm and they might be able to talk to a chatbot and get directed to the right person within the firm immediately or even get advice right away. You know, you call up a chatbot and I, I need to open a new account. Okay, you know, we can help you with that. Go to this website, click here, click here, or hey, we've already sent you a packet to your email. Just open it up, click here, here, and here, digitally sign, and, and you're done. Those kind of things. I'm glad you mentioned Intergen Data. That's one of the companies I really like. Uh, I've been watching them for a while. I think that I think they've got a lot of runway and a, a lot to. They're going to make a big impact in a number of areas. One is financial planning that advisors are, aren't really thinking about some of the, some of the things that Intergen 
can bring to light using their their data analytics. Yeah, I think they're a really interesting company. Again, it's kind of early in the game and we'll have to see what happens, but I love the direction they're going in. Agreed. What about another company I want to bring up was Orion Advisor. So they, they've been very innovative in the space and uh, they came out with two announcements. One was about compliance and their new compliance tool. One was about their, their business equity uh, partnership. How do you see those two announcements impacting the space? Well, you know, I think they're interesting. I think the biz equity thing, obviously, it depends on where you are in the life cycle of your firm as an advisor about how valuable that is or isn't to you. But I think in general, what we've seen out of Orion in the last few years is that they're innovators. You know, they have the Fuse competition, so they try and encourage innovation amongst their partners. And I think, you know, they're an outside-the-box firm. They're willing to take a chance. They're willing to try new things. And if it doesn't work out, fail fast. And if it does work out, you know, bring it to market fast. So I think in general, that's the kind of firm DNA that leads to success. I agree with that. Uh, in the financial planning space, you know, Advicent has always been a leader in a number of areas. And you know, they came out with also some announcements uh, today. And some of them were in line with some of the trends we're seeing. But how do you see their products moving forward and, and do you see them being pushed by the Edmund Walters announcement? Yeah, I don't think it's any surprise that they've struggled a little bit over the last couple of years and that they needed to um, do some renovation, if you will, um, with their product line. And I think it was a very positive sign that their CEO came to T3 and wanted to talk about what the next steps were for the firm. Clearly, they're aware of what's going on around them and they're trying to respond you know, as she said, it's going to be a few months before we actually see the product, although we did get a little preview of it. And we'll just have to wait and see. But they've been a leader in the in the industry for many years. And they're trying their best to respond. We'll see how it goes. I really like their new user interface. I thought that was something that would, would attract a lot of attention from advisors. No, I don't disagree. I think they're, you know, they're on the right track. But as you know, it's all about execution. And so, you know, I like to withhold judgment until I actually see the finished product. But I think, like I said, what they're doing, they seem to be moving in the right direction. So that's a net positive. And, well, one of the things I liked was all the different flash sessions you had where a lot of demos were coming up. And I thought that was really helpful for people to, who hadn't seen a lot of these tools to get an understanding of, of what's out there. So I want to talk about Advisor Stream. They, they have a very interesting product and it's on the social media side and, and pushing out content and well, it's not an AI related, but it feels like it's AI, that it seems to understand what advisors want. It seems to understand what clients are clicking on and be able to, to take those, integrate them and, and build a better experience. No, I would agree with everything you said. Look, I think it's, it's pretty well known that advisors, particularly on the fee-only side, historically, they haven't been the best marketers in the world. Um, they used to get most of their business through referrals. I think all the data is showing us the referrals are dropping off significantly. And advisors are going to need to be a little more aggressive and thoughtful about their marketing in the future. Digital marketing is clearly the way to go. And Advisor Stream is one of the products that looks very promising to be able to help advisors craft those digital marketing campaigns. Yeah, I've looked at a lot of these tools. And I find their, I like their interface. They've also copied the, the Netflix style interface like Money Guy Pro did for their, their content. Very interesting. Yeah, I think it's very intuitive. You know, when it comes to those kind of products, there's a couple of things you look at, right? One is clearly user interface, right? It has to be easy to use. We talked about that already. 
But another thing is just how good the content is and how flexible it is. So is it content that is going to resonate with your target audience, number one? Can you customize it? You know, can you add to it? Those kind of things. And AdvisorStream is still relatively new to the game. But again, I like the direction they're going. Yeah, I really like their, the way they don't just link you back to the content. They give you a custom page and just the broker, and it's the advisor's face and the, or his logo and brand. And that's, I think that's something that's, it's, it seems small, but it, it really is, is really big, is a big piece of it when you think about how bombarded clients are or prospective clients with advertising and marketing and the internet. I would agree. I think they were very thoughtful about the interface and I think they understand, they understand what advisors need or what they want. And I, I think, yeah, I, I would agree with everything you just said. <laughs> Another company that I thought was interesting, again, these are not the, necessarily the, the most, the, the sexiest technologies, but with Ready2 and, and BillFin, that billing product is something that, you know, billing is something advisors can't ignore. Similar to mm-hmm. the regulatory issues that, uh, and, and I know the demo, the presentation by the BillFin guys talked a lot about risk and talked a lot about the SEC uh, Office of Compliance and, and you know, having technology that can help you uh, manage those those risks is important. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it depends on your situation as an advisor and how complex your billing schemes are. So some advisors have very, what I would call, simple, clear-cut billing schemes that don't really require a third-party product. But you also see a lot of advisors that, you know, even though they, they seem to think um, that their billing schedules are, are simple, that when you really delve into it a little bit, it almost feels like they have a separate billing schedule for every one of their clients. So the more billing schedules you have and the more complex your needs, the more likely you are to need some third-party software. And, um, and these guys do a really good job. And, you know, there are other ones, but we think they do a good job. Indeed. And, and they're focused a lot. They're, you know, the Ready2 ready part is focused more on the broker-dealer bank side. And they launched BillFin a couple of years ago, and it's already become really successful on the RIA side. Yeah, it's, again, and I think the reason is, again, because a, a lot of RIAs, their billing schedules are more complex than you would gather at first glance. and to be able to automate that and to be able to have really good records to be able to show SEC regulators, what have you, it just makes for a cleaner business. The area of cybersecurity is one that's been overlooked a lot. And it's, uh, especially in, in our industry, it's not in general, I think most firms have, have been hearing about cybersecurity issues and especially breaches and, and data leaks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but firms like FCI Cyber, who have come in and focused more on building VPNs and, and, and building an end-to-end compliant, regulatorily uh, managed uh, cybersecurity infrastructure, I think is something that a lot of firms are, are taking a very hard look at now. You know, I'm a big fan of FCI for a number of reasons. You know, one reason is in our recent T3 Inside Information Technology Survey, we found that less than 6% of advisory firms that we surveyed have a third-party provider for cyber. So that means either they're not doing what they should be doing or they're relying on their broker-dealer or custodian. And I think relying on your broker-dealer or custodian is a good first step, but to me that's not a complete solution. And I think ultimately the responsibility is on the firm because if there's a problem, 
you can't run around and say, hey, it was my custodian's fault or it was my broker dealer fault, the book stops with you. And so you don't know what you don't know. These guys are experts. Cyber is all they do. You talked a little bit about end-to-end solutions. I think there's a lot of other firms out there that provide a piece of the puzzle, but they don't provide really a comprehensive service like FCI does. So I've had actually a number of friends of mine who advisors call me and saying, well, why should I use them? Because XYZ is cheaper. And I am like, well, you're not comparing apples to apples. They only are one piece of the puzzle, the other firm. They don't provide the end-to-end solution. The other thing that I think advisors need to understand is just like with investments, with cyber, there's active and passive monitoring. So some of the less expensive services are passive. And what that means is, yes, if somebody's trying to hack you, attack your system, you'll get an alert saying you're being attacked or something like that, but there's no next step. And with a firm like FCI that does active, you know, they are going to be there on your behalf to remediate the situation and take the necessary actions, not just say, hey, you're being attacked now, go do what you need to do. And, and they're also active on the compliance side. So really helping you get the policies and procedures in place and making sure you understand the threats, giving your, your firm the training. You know, it's a much more comprehensive solution. I found their, de- their detective product that evaluates the health of the device. As soon as the, the, the advisor would plug into the network, it automatically checks your device to see if you are compliant. So that's, that seems more like an active management rather than waiting for a problem to happen and then trying to fix it later. Yeah, I think they're much more proactive than some of their competitors. They're also part of um, the Clever Dome initiative. So really, they're on the cutting edge of cybersecurity prevention, if you will. And we recommend them regularly to our clients because we think very highly of them. On the, uh, another area that I wanted to talk to you about, Joel, was custodians. So what do you see the role of custodians playing in, in wealth tech and, you know, in terms of them providing technology and them offering this technology that's going to integrate with the rest of the different systems and, and how these different custodians, we have, we have Pershing, Fidelity, E-Trade, how their technologies are driving the rest of the industry. What is your opinion on Well, I think it's certainly evolved over the last dozen years. If if you look back a dozen years, pretty much every custodian said, you know, we're just going to handle the back office stuff and everything else is up to the advisor. We're not going to get into that space. And clearly what you saw during the Great Recession was that advisors were getting squeezed and the custodians and and the industry come into the realization that small to mid-sized firms just really didn't have the technological capability to build out their own technology infrastructure and that it was essentially hurting the custodians because if, if these advisors couldn't scale, they couldn't add more assets to the custodian's platform and that's why they're in business. So every custodian to a greater or lesser extent has been investing money since then in helping advisors you know, build out their technology stack or having a solution for advisors. Uh, TD Ameritrade was clearly the leader with Veo and now Veo One, but every other custodian has, to a greater or lesser extent, tried to, you know, create their own technology infrastructure to support some of these integrations and help advisors have a solution, and even pick technology. Right, almost all the custodians have what what I would call, you know, their own technology consultants that'll go out into the field and help advisors choose technology. Um, They try to be 
somewhat agnostic. Obviously, they all have their own relationships with third parties, and some are better than others. True. One thing I've seen, maybe you've seen the same thing, is technology from the custodians used to be just okay. They, They built something because they had to have it. It wasn't the best. It wasn't industry leadership or thought leadership or innovative. It was just a product that was free. It was good for the smaller advisors, and it did the job. Now I'm seeing a lot more innovation and, and interesting ideas. You know, with Christina Townsend from Pershing, what she was talking about with the way they're, they're pushing their, their platform and revitalizing it. And it seems like it could be something that might even rival some of the standalone platforms. Do, do you see the same thing? Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I was very happy to hear what Christine was saying. I think, frankly, that, you know, from my perspective, uh, Pershing was trailing in the quote-unquote innovation space. I don't know if that has something to do with the fact that they are owned by a bank or that they just had identified a specific type of advisory client they wanted and they were just building for that as opposed to, you know, more generally um, what the other custodians were. But I think over the last six months, certainly, I've seen a change of direction there. They seem to be getting more aggressive. I do agree that, you know, they've rethought what their platform needs to look like. And it looks like they're trying to execute on that plan. And so, to me, again, a very encouraging sign. What about Fidelity? They're, they launched a new onboarding experience. And, and I, know, I know I've written a lot about onboarding and, and how important that is to the client experience. Do you see Fidelity's finally reaping the benefits of their e-money purchase? I think Fidelity has already reaped a lot of benefits from the e-money purchase. I think a lot of them are not necessarily you know, obvious to the casual observer, but almost from day one, Um, They got intellectual property uh, regarding user experience that I think was very valuable. And I think certainly, you know, they can provide a more comprehensive service, if you will, to broker dealers, to advisors who use both the Fidelity and eMoney platforms. Um, They've also tried to be innovative and I think with some success on, you know, data processing, if you will. So looking at performance reporting, not just as performance reporting, but also looking at the data underlying everything advisors do and being able to serve up that data in ways to advisors that are either useful or ways to monetize the data, for lack of a better term. Will monetizing the data become an issue for vendors in wealth tech? Are we going to see the same privacy concerns and pushback from clients when they start seeing that type of data being used and and fed back to them in different ways? Look, uh, this is one of those questions that I don't think anybody knows the answer to. You know, Canal and I had a conversation, the CEO of um, Morningstar during the conference, and he was talking about perhaps monetizing the data. I think the first more critical question is ownership of the data. Right now, one of the problems you see with aggregation which is really, you know, a key technology that helps advisors be more efficient is who owns the data. So the situation to me is very reminiscent of what used to go on a few years ago with medical records where, you know, you would go to your doctor and say, I want a copy of my medical records and you didn't have a right to your own data. And an executive order, I believe in 2015, changed that. And there's still talk about opening that up even more. Um, 
and making it available for other uses and giving clients, the end client, the person whose medical records it is, more control over how that's used, you know, perhaps through apps, big data, other ways that could be beneficial to the client. We need the same thing in financial services. We need to make it pretty clear that the, the data is owned by the client and then the client can decide, you know, what to share with who, whether they want their, their advisor to be able to use that data in ways that are beneficial to them and maybe even to offset in the future, uh, you know, the cost of technology or whatever. So I think this is one of the next frontiers that we're going to have to deal with, but I think we need either legislative or regulatory uh, changes in order, you know, for any of this stuff to come about. I'm glad you mentioned data aggregation. That was the next thing I was going to talk to you about. And we're seeing a lot of data aggregation becoming table stakes in most products, whether it's financial planning or portfolio accounting, portfolio management systems all need to have the data aggregation as part of their offering. E-Trade yep. mentioned at their, during their presentation that 50% of the logins to their systems last year were from data aggregation vendors looking who were given consumer credentials and were screen scraping or pulling data. So, is, how is that going to impact, you know, that's only going to increase. We're only going to see more data aggregation, more pulling of data. So is that going to really put a tax on other, other company systems or are they going to push back? Right. So I think, you know, th there's a number of issues there. W one issue is who's going to pay for all of this, right? Because if, if you have a system and people are constantly pulling at your system, your APIs, if you will, that means that, whoever is being accessed, right, whether it's E-Trade or somebody else, needs to have powerful enough computers, enough servers, enough bandwidth, what have you, to, in order to service that. So there's a cost to them, and that's legitimate. You know, who ultimately is going to pay for that, I think, remains to be seen. But I think, you know, you also just mentioned screen scraping. So screen scraping is an older technology that, quite frankly, is, is just not that accurate. And because of that, the quality of the data is not that good. So I think one of the other issues around data aggregation is if you don't have direct feeds um, that are reliable, the quality of the data you're getting is not that good. And so certainly from a perform performance reporting aspect, um, I would say using screen scrape data to do performance reporting is almost malpractice. Well, not almost. It is malpractice because you just cannot rely on the quality of the data. And even, even the companies that, have, that are commonly used by advisors for data aggregation, I think most of them, at least privately, would tell you that you know, their data is not nearly as good as they would like it to be. Um, I talk to vendors all the time that are making use of that data, and one of the most common complaints in the industry among you know, CTOs or people who are dealing with, with aggregated data is that the quality of the data is not what they would like it to be. And it, you know, the analogy I would make there is we used to have you know, voice-to-text, things like Dragon Naturally Speaking, and they would say they're 99% accurate. Well, 99% accurate means there's going to be two errors more or less on every page that you do. That's not good enough. It's the same with data aggregation. 95, 97, 98% accuracy is just not good enough if you're doing performance reporting and there's nobody 
that approaches 100% accuracy across all of the various companies that they're pulling data from. And so that's the biggest problem I think we have today with that aggregation. Dragon, naturally speaking, that's a, a, a product I haven't heard about in a long time. <laughs> yeah, it's a blast from the past, but I figured you would appreciate it. I definitely appreciate that. I, I, I set that up for people a long time ago. That was that was the thing in uh, in voice activated, you know, voice. Right, voice. and it was the best we had, so we dealt with it. But it wasn't good enough. It was always frustrating. You had to go back and edit every page after it was done and find the two or three errors in every page. Yep, and it was a lot of money. Now it's you know, now the kind of uh, voice to text is free on your phone. Right. The wealth management platforms and portfolio management platforms. We're also pushing out a lot of new products and, and, and new innovations. And uh, you mentioned data aggregation uh, as well. That Investnet buying Quo, uh, buying Yodel a number of years ago was seen as a as something that was not crazy, but the, it was a head scratcher for a lot of people. But yep. now that that has come to fruition, they've they've really done a good job integrating it. And, and the recent uh, Quovo deal. Do you see that as validating Investnet's vision for buying Yodely, or is it just a, another deal that you expect consolidation in the industry? It, it's funny. I don't know that they needed validation. I think um, based on what, what I've heard, Investnet is pretty happy with that acquisition. And I think, you know, the Quovo deal just points once again to the value and the opportunities that exist in account aggregation. But having said that, you know, Quovo is, depending on who you talk to, as good or slightly better um, than some of the other aggregators out there. But again, they have issues too. So it doesn't totally solve the problem, but I think it does point to the fact that that aggregation is becoming table stakes and it's something that everybody's going to need and the demand for it is not going away. And so I think that's why folks are willing to pay up for those services. Let me rephrase. I wasn't saying that Investnet was looking for validation, but I think that this purchase validates their vision that you need that type of integration, you need that type of broad coverage, both on the retail banking side, payment side, wealth side, in order to provide holistic advice to clients. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's what you know, Yodely basically, now, now Plaid has what Yodely had a couple of years ago. Yeah. The uh, the Invent.us, the Oleg Tishkovich uh, venture, yep. that's very new, or very different, definitely very different in terms of our space, you know, where they're not selling a product per se, they're selling a methodology and, and a new way of architecting products. Mm-hmm. Do you see that as a trend? Will it be more companies that start out, hey, we're, we're, we're just a, a development shop and we're looking to build stuff and here's a unique methodology we have for building it? I'm not so sure about that. I don't know if, like Taken, remember the movie Taken where he says, I have a unique set of skills? Uh, yeah, he did. Well, yeah, well, it's kind of like Oleg. You know, he's got a unique set of skills. He's been in the business a long time. He has connections with top developers and in, in very you know in various specialties and so i think he is well positioned to do that but i don't think it's something that's very easy to replicate and so i think we'll just have to wait and see how that plays out but um i just think that's somewhat unique and i don't think also that he's going to end there i think he has 
bigger aspirations. It would have been funny if Oleg had gotten up on stage and said, I have a very particular set of skills. Exactly. I don't know who you are. <laughs> but that's kind of what he was saying, right? Yeah, kind you know, of. He, he, he has a sort of a virtual firm with people with a unique set of skills. Some of them are world, not some of them. Yeah, a number of them are world-class and very unique. And I don't think that's something that somebody just coming in from outside the industry could easily replicate. Mm. That's true. I mean, it took me a little while to understand where he was going with that. And I spent some time talking to him. It does seem like it's a, a, a green field. There, there aren't a lot of players offering that type of advice to you know, the, on the technology side and the architecture side to these firms. Yeah, and you need a lot of credibility within the industry to be able to do something like that. And so, again, I think based on his track record, it, it gives him that credibility. It certainly does. He's the only, one of the only people who would walk around and only use his first name. There you go. I think you're probably the only person, too. <laughs> okay, so there's two of us. Two of you. Uh, one other area that I saw that that seems to be exploding. You know, I've, I've always I used to say a lot. There can't. There's no room for this. There's no room for that. And I'm always wrong. That there's always room for one more, whatever it is, whether it's another another financial planning tool, another CRM. There always seems to be more room on the portfolio rebalancing side. There always seems to be more and more of these tools out there uh, when you think there can't be any more and that they've done it all. And one firm that I noticed has been has kind of come to conferences recently, and, and they've been under, flying under the radar for many years is Softpak Financial Systems from Boston, and they're actually have been one of the, one of the oldest rebalancing tools. I think they started 17 years ago, mm-hmm. and, and no one really heard about them since they were sort of the, the Intel inside a lot of other products. And now they're out, and they're 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 selling more directly, and they've, they've got a great track record to to, to build that on. So they, I see them being very successful, but other firms starting up, starting today, here's our rebalancer, here's our tools. Do they have a chance or is the space just too crowded? You know, it's an interesting question. Um, I don't think it is too crowded. And I'll tell you why. I think most of the independents, the small to mid-sized independents, ended up getting bought out. And so there's not a lot of true you know, sophisticated rebalancing systems out there that are independent. Yes, it's a niche product, and yes, they'll have to find the space. But I think one of two things happens. I think, yeah, there's still a market for that stuff. So people will buy it if you have a good product, and and it's attractively priced. And number two, you know, the other option is there's still firms that probably should have built it already and didn't. And so maybe they would get bought out. So I just think there's a couple of avenues for a firm uh, still to get in that space. Yeah, there has been a fair amount of M&A, um, uh, uh, albeit a smaller nature, firms like Trade Warrior being bought. Of course, Tamarack was, was six years ago now. By yep. TRX. TRX by Morningstar. Right? So there, there is some some um, benefit there. Yeah, so all those firms got cleared out, and now if you're looking for a third, you know, independent third party that can integrate with your existing systems, well, there's not as many choices as there were a few years ago, so I do think there's an opportunity there. Yeah, Softpack is one of those. Joel, I wanted to thank you from Technology Tools from today and the T3 Advisor Conference. 
for, for talking to me today, and I really thought you'd provide some great insights. Well, it was my pleasure to chat with you. It's always uh, entertaining, and it's always enlightening. And I want to thank you for your continued support of T3. We couldn't do it without folks like you. Thank you very much, Joe. I appreciate it. And there you have it. Definitely exciting to hear my first podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me. Just a few more items before we go. I will include links to all the companies that Joel and I mentioned in the show notes, as well as a couple of links to articles on my blog that I think you might find interesting. And if you enjoyed this interview and podcast as much as I did, please take a few minutes right now and leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I will really appreciate it. Thank you so very much for listening, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Wealth Management Today. It's on Wealth Day. Wealth Day.